The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, we always make sure that we are in fellowship with him, filled with the Holy Spirit. Whenever we sin, we immediately grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. The solution, the grace recovery solution that God has given us, is to simply admit or acknowledge our sins to Him. We studied that in our current study of 1 John. If we confess, which means to admit or acknowledge our sins to Him, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That means at the moment of admission of sin, we are immediately cleansed from that sin and all other sins, known and unknown, and we are restored to fellowship. The filling of the Holy Spirit becomes operative. His teaching ministry begins to function, and we are able to then learn and assimilate spiritually the doctrine that we study. So with that, we begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can gather together to study your word, that your word is realistic. You understand who we are. It treats us in light of our sinfulness and is a proclamation of your grace, grace being all that you are free to do to us, because do for us because of what Christ has done on the cross. Father, we thank you for grace at salvation and grace at spiritual recovery and grace that is operative at so many different levels throughout our spiritual life. Father, we realize that the spiritual life is more than just being in fellowship. It's more than just confessing sin, but it is advancing to spiritual maturity through regularly taking in the Word, studying it, and assimilating it into our souls through application so that we are edified, matured, uh, brought to a position of where we can glorify you in everything in our lives. Now, Father, as we continue to study these spiritual techniques, And as we continue to study the mechanics of the spiritual life, we pray that you'd help us to understand these things in light of our own spiritual walk, that we might be challenged, that we might accept the challenge to go forward and advance in our relationship with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 John. 
chapter 2, we continue our study of fellowship, which is the theme of this epistle. 1 John is written to believers at the church in Ephesus. This is sometime later than the epistle to the Ephesians written by Paul. And by this time, which is late in the first century, around 90 A.D., there has come to be a teaching that has begun to infect the church. Later, it became known as Gnosticism, but elements of Gnosticism were present even in the first century. And as a result of that, the church was being taught or coming under the influence of ideas, uh, basically saying that it really didn't matter what you did. It didn't matter if you sinned because that was in your material body, which was always going to be sinful. The only thing that mattered was your spiritual self who you were in the Spirit. And so there's this dichotomy that is drawn between um, the physical, the body, the flesh, and that which is spirit. That's not a biblical emphasis. The two are united. We are one person. And when we sin, it affects our relationship to God. According to this early pre-Gnostic view, if you sinned, it didn't affect anything because uh, that just affected you in your physical body. You know, it almost reminds me of terminology you hear sometimes today. You turn on uh, television sometimes and you pick up on uh, uh, some of these evangelists and teachers. And I hear this. To me, it just sounds very strange, this phrase, that, well, that person did it in the natural or they did something in the spirit. That's Gnosticism. And you hear that a lot on, on with certain... Uh, television evangelists and preachers, and they, that is just shows that that, uh, that train of theology that they have bought into as is, um, uh, uh, is really a form of, of modern Gnosticism, trying to draw this kind of dichotomy between the physical and the spiritual. This is what John's dealing with. And so he, he has an introduction. Uh, our introduction in 1, 1 through 5, and then our 1, 1 through 4, and then in 1, 5, down through 2, 11, we have a, a sort of a prologue. It's an introduction of the main theme of this epistle, and we can divide that into two, group, two sections. From 1, 5 down through 2, 2 is the importance of maintaining fellowship with God in order to advance spiritually. That's the thing there. You maintain fellowship by not sinning. If you sin, then we have a grace recovery procedure through confession, 1 John 1, 9. And then because of the operation of Jesus Christ, our advocate in the heavenlies, 1 John 2, 2. So that first section emphasizes what we would call the Uh, life of the new believer, the baby believer. It's important to stay in fellowship. It's not just a matter of being in fellowship, but enjoying or having fellowship. The Greek word that Paul, I mean, that John uses there in uh, 1 John 1 4 and in 1 5 is to have fellowship. Have is from the Greek word echo, meaning to have and to hold. I would translate it enjoy, to, to, to possess. Fellowship, it's not just a static idea, but there's an, an active sense to that. And if we do not maintain fellowship and enjoy fellowship, there is no spiritual growth because it is in that act of fellowship, which is a, a joint participation in something. 
Now, we're participating with the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that's maturing us, that's teaching us, that's guiding us, that's directing us. It's the Holy Spirit that brings doctrine back to our mind. It's the Holy Spirit that helps us to understand doctrine. That's fellowship. That is, that's, that's the key dynamic in fellowship. So those first, that first section is really addressed to the foundation of the spiritual life that you have to control that has to be part of your life if you're going to get beyond spiritual infancy. Then in 1 John 2.3, John steps up the conversation. He moves from what is necessary to grow to what is necessary to advance. Here the stress in, verses, in chapter 2, 3 to 11 is the importance of knowing and loving God in order to advance to spiritual maturity. Now, the baby believer doesn't know God. He may know a few things about God. He may think he loves God simply in response to the fact that now he's saved, but more often than not, for the spiritual infant, that's emotion, it's sentiment. It is not a love that's based on knowledge. And the love in the Scriptures is a love that's based on knowledge and understanding, and it's never measured by emotion or feeling. This is one of the problems that we have in our whole society today is that we've lost meaning of love. Most people think of love as emotion, as sentiment, as feeling. But if we're going to understand any concept, any concept whatsoever, the starting point methodologically must be the Word of God. And God teaches us about love, that love is something that's related to faithfulness. It's related to a covenant. That's why we have a a marriage ceremony. It's an entrance into a contract, a covenant between a husband and a wife. And it is something that is based on uh, obedience to that covenant. That's why again and again and again you never hear Jesus say, if you love me, you're going to feel a certain way. If you love me, you're going to uh, always have the rosy glow. You're always going to be uplifted. You're always going to have that. You don't ever have love expressed in any sort of sentimental or emotional way. It is always expressed, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will obey me. If you love me, you will obey me. There's always this objective obedience there. It's never measured in terms of feeling, always in terms of understanding doctrine and application of doctrine. So starting in 2.3 down through 2.11, the emphasis is on what's necessary to advance to maturity. Knowing and loving God is what relates to the maturing adult believer. So we see two different stages here of spiritual growth, spiritual infancy and spiritual adulthood, and what characterizes spiritual adulthood. Now, last time we began in verse 3, a very important passage, which reads, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And we saw last time that, that the word know here does not relate to academic knowledge about God. A lot of people know things about God. In fact, I have on my bookshelves a number of theology books written by liberals who don't have a clue what salvation is all about, but every now and then they have some really good points to make because they can read and they can observe what is written on a page, but there's no real spiritual knowledge there. In fact, many of the better language tools are written by people who don't have a clue what the grace of God is all about, but they're etymologists, and they're good in grammar, and so they have 
many helpful insights. But they know things about God, but they don't know him, either in a saving way or in terms of a personal relationship as a result of spending time in his word. We saw the second option for knowing God is the idea of salvation. But this is not the meaning here because this would... Uh, then would have to say, this is, by this we know that we have come to be saved if we keep his commandments. And that would base salvation on keeping commandments. And that's the opposite of grace. That's works. And so the meaning here is not works. I mean, it's not salvation knowledge, but is intimate knowledge, which comes from spending time in fellowship and advancing to uh, spiritual maturity. Now, one little point of grammar I need to, need to uh, point out is the phrase, by this we know. By this we know. Now, every now and then I have to get a little bit um, detailed in terms of grammar. Remember, the Bible was not written in English. It wasn't written in King James English. I hope that doesn't shock any of you. Every now and then I run into somebody who thinks that the King James was good enough for the Apostle Paul. It's good enough for us. But but despite those that don't have much of an education historically, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote in Greek, and so did the other apostles. And the New Testament is written in Greek, and therefore to understand what is said here, we have to do study in the original languages, because too often when something is translated and goes from one language to another, there are things lost. We've all heard the statement that something was lost in translation. Well, certain things are lost in translation, and we miss certain things if we don't look at, at the Greek. Now, when we look at a phrase by this, we know in a All things being equal, a phrase like by this can refer to either that which comes before or that which comes after. That which comes before or that which comes after. Let me put this up on the board like this. By this. Here we have the phrase by this. In the Greek, it's in tuto. Now, it can refer to by this, that which precedes, and that's called the anaphoric use. Or it can refer to that which comes after, and that is called the cataphoric use. Now, how do you determine whether a phrase like this is referring to that which has already been st- stated or that which is to follow? Well, there are usually certain uh, syntactical clues. There are certain things in the passage that make it clear as to what is coming or what precedes. And usually what happens in, in, uh, when something follows is that there is a subordinate explanatory clause that follows. And if that's true, then it is a cataphoric use of the phrase. If it's referring to something preceding, then it lacks that subordinate explanatory clause. Now, what we have here is the statement, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The by this is going to be cataphoric because it refers to, let me go back one slide, it refers to, it has a subordinate 
explanatory clause. The if clause is subordinate. It's not the main clause. It's a subordinate clause, and it, is, it explains the by this. Now, the reason I am making an issue out of this is because uh, through a little repetition, you will become familiar with the terminology. John uses this terminology by this about six different times in the, the epistle. And each time we have to look at it in terms of the context in the Greek, because the English isn't going to give us a clue. For example, if we turn down, just go down a couple of verses to verse 4. Or verse 5. Verse 5 reads, of First John 2, 5. Verse 5 reads, But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. Now, verse 5 ends with the phrase, By this we know that we are in him. And then verse 6 starts, He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Now, most commentaries will say that the by this we know that we are in him, the by this is also cataphoric, focusing on verse 6. But verse 6 is not a subordinate explanatory clause. So the by this we know that we are in him is going to be anaphoric. That tells us that what we have here is a is it what I would, what's called an inclusio. It's like two bookends. You have a by this we know in verse three, and a by this we know in verse five, and they're both referring to what comes in between. And this sets it up almost like a, a picture frame. But if you don't understand the grammar here, and there's a there's a lot of uh, Debate in, I had to go work my way through several grammars and several uh, scholarly articles this last week to try to work through all of the minutiae related to this, but then that's what they pay me the big bucks for. <laughs> Just wanted to see if anybody was awake this morning. And it's not always easy because there are there are commentaries and there are uh, people who have different views and you have to wade through a lot of arguments. And that's what study is all about. You learn over time and over experience and over mistakes that you make. And remember, we always learn more sometimes from the mistakes we make than uh, from the positive things we do. But you have to be, learn how to think as a pastor because you have to study you have to weigh the different arguments. You have to look, okay, this person says this, 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 and this. This person says this, 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 and this. What are the strengths and weaknesses here? What are the strengths and weaknesses here? And you have to be able to apply some logic and some experience. And then you have to go into every passage that an author has, like John. You have both the Gospel of John and First John. And you have to go through every single time the author uses a phrase like in toto. And you have to look at the verse that uh, surrounding that, the preceding verse and the following verse, and you have to break down the grammar and the syntax in order to look at these things because there's some, one grammarian would say one thing, but he misses a point. And so you have to be able to do that, and it takes a lot of time and a lot of diligence. 
But that's what is necessary to correctly handle the Word of God. And so we see here that we have an inclusio form by the both the cataphoric and then the anaphoric use of in toto. So let's back up a minute to make sure we have a correct understanding from last time of verse 3. By this we understand... Back up. By this we understand, we know, by this principle or by this test that is following, that he is about to state. By this principle we know something that we know him. Now, if you weren't here on Wednesday night, you don't know this. I'm using a new Bible. I was recently given by one of the editors of this study Bible a Nelson study Bible which, from my perusal of the notes so far, seems pretty good. It's a New King James Version, so that translation will differ from yours a little bit because I think most of you are using a New American Standard. But we're going to uh, just follow along with me, and we're going to do a little practical evaluation. I tried to change study Bibles about ten years ago. It didn't work then. You know, the one I've been using for, for 25 years was the Ryrie Study Bible I got when I was in seminary, and it has a lot of notes in it, but they don't hold up forever, so we're going to give it one more shot and see if there's going to be a new, new Bible in our future. Now, the thing is, we get so used to looking at a familiar Bible, we know where the verses are by their position on the page. And also, when it's a new Bible, the pages stick together. So you're just going to have to be patient with me because this is its a real challenge. I keep looking at the page and having sort of an out-of-body experience. Like, where, where am I and what verse is this? Also, it's got the verses paragraphed instead of lined out one at a time, so I have to get used to this whole uh, setup. But we'll persevere. By this we know that we know him. That's how the new... Uh, King James translates it. We know that we know him. The New American Standard translates it. By this we know that we have come to know him. And the reason that's important, and that's a better translation in the NASB, is because what you have in the Greek here is a perfect active indicative. And it's an intensive perfect. And that means that, that it, it's an emphasis on the present results of a past action. Perfect tense is, uh, emphasizes an action that's been completed in, in past time. Now, if, it has an, if it's an intensive nuance, that emphasizes the present results of that past action. If it's extensive perfect, it's emphasizing the completedness or the, or the past completedness of the action. Well, this is emphasizing the present reality that we have come to know him. We're now in a state of knowing him. So we're going to learn that there is a test, a a, a way of evaluating ourselves to see if we have come to this point now of knowing him. That implies that we can be saved and not know him. But that's advancing our question, which is, what does John mean by knowing God? Now, this is an important verse. There's a lot of controversy over the meaning of this. And in many places you turn to, They think that knowing him in this verse is the same as salvation. A simple way to to refute that is what I stated already, and that is that if we just do a word substitution, a synonym substitution, 
then that would mean, now by this, we know that we are saved if we keep His commandments. Now, there are a lot of people who think that, that if you're not an obedient Christian, then you're not a Christian at all. But that's not what this is saying. And in order to understand that, we went back last time to a conversation Jesus had with His disciples in John chapter 14. And in John chapter 14, verse 7, Jesus had addressed the disciples and said, If you all had known me, you would have known my Father also. Now, obviously, they're saved. He's talking to them as saved. Those of you who are with me, when we went through John and we went through the upper room discourse, know that all the eleven disciples that are present at this point are saved. Jesus had already kicked Judas out because he wasn't saved. And the point of the upper room discourse was to introduce them to Christian life teaching that was going to be developed after the cross and after the resurrection. The timing of the upper room discourse is the night before he went to the cross, and he's beginning to introduce church-age doctrine and church-age spiritual life doctrine to the disciples. So, obviously, they're saved. They're saved, but they don't know him. It says, if you had known me, you think you do, but, but you don't. It's a debater's first class. You would have known my father also. From now on you know him, because there's going to be a new development called the coming of the Holy Spirit, and have seen him. Now, Philip says to him, he still doesn't get the point. One of the reasons I pointed out that they're so slow is they still don't have the Holy Spirit. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, it's enough for us. Well, Jesus just got through saying that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus says to him, uh, have I been so long with you all? And yet you, singular, have not come to know me, Philip. Notice he said, I've been so long with you all, you disciples, and yet you, Philip, have not come to know me. And there he uses the same perfect active indicative of gnosko that he uses in 1 John 2, 3. And that means that, that he's talking to Philip, Philip saved, but Philip doesn't know it. The point we're making is that you can be saved and not know God. You might know a few things about God. You might know God so loved the world. He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. You might know some things about God's justice or His righteousness. But to know someone, you have to spend time with them. You have to learn things about them. It's a process. It takes study. It takes meditation. It takes uh, time. All of those factors, and that wasn't there for Philip. He's just a baby believer. So baby believers can know something about God, but they don't know Him. Now, the issue then, the test then, that we are just coming to in the second half of the verse, is by this we know that we have come to know Him, that is, advanced to maturity, at least to the point that we have this intimate relationship with God, this personal knowledge of God, John uses a third-class condition, because it might not be true for some. Now, by this we know that we have come to know Him. Here's the principle. If we keep His commandments. It's expressed as a condition, if, third-class condition. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. It's a true hypothetical condition. If we keep His commandments. Now, the word keep is the present active indicative of the verb tereo. T-E-R-E-O. 
The present tense is continuous, but here it doesn't mean that you continuously obey the commandments. It is what is called a habitual perfect. And that means that this is something that generally characterizes your life. It's also called, excuse me, I say perfect. It's also called a customary present. And a customary present emphasizes repeated action. The, it also has a, this, this uh, idea that, that there are interruptions. So there, it's repeated action, but there are interruptions between the actions. And that's what's true in the life of a believer. We get to a point where we keep his commandments, but we still sin. We still disobey God. So we're out of fellowship, and we need to confess our sins and get back in fellowship. But when you reach maturity, you're generally characterized by the fact that you are obedient to those commandments. Now, this word tereo is an important word, and it goes back to what is called the Great Commission, which was a passage that was our commission that was given by the Lord, and I don't have it on a screen, which was given by the Lord to his disciples in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. There he told the disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. That's your present active imperative command. This is the marching orders to the disciples. Now, what is a disciple? Now, a disciple is not somebody who gets in a small group. This is one of those buzzwords in modern Christianity. It sort of drives me nuts. Everybody's gotten on this discipleship bandwagon since about 19, since the 30s and 40s when you had a man named Dawson Trotman found an organization called the Navigators. Now, I've benefited a lot from the Navigators over the years, and I'm not uh, just jumping up and down on top of the Navigators right now. I'm just using this as an illustration that Trotman found an effective way for him to minister was in small groups. And he would get groups of men together, and they would commit to one another to uh, study the Word, to memorize Scripture, and to meet on a weekly basis. And that's great. It's It's not a pattern set forth by Scripture. What Jesus did with the disciples was not what they did. You don't find Peter and Paul going out and getting a group of disciples, 8, 10, 12 men, and then teaching them. Sure, they had followers that they were committing the truth to, but not in that sense. You don't find the word disciple after Matthew 28. You don't. What you find is one pastor teaching a group. Now, in the process of that, he picked up some assistants, some um, men who he was personally training to uh, become pastors, but you don't have this ironclad methodology of small group dynamics, which has become almost an unquestionable icon in the modern church. The word disciple means student. It simply means make students of all nations. Turn people into students of the Word of God. Make them fanatics about studying the Word of God, where the Word of God is the highest priority in their life. What's going to go along with it? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that, of course, relates to salvation, teaching them saving truth. And then that's exemplified by water baptism, which is nothing more than a physical representation of what has already taken place in the spiritual realm. Secondly, teaching them. Notice it's not preaching, it's teaching. 
that the key in the spiritual life is to be taught, to learn something. Preaching primarily focuses on encouragement or exhortation. But that's not the word we find here. We find teaching. Teaching should be verse by verse, line upon line, precept upon precept. The purpose of teaching is to drill things into people so that they learn, not just so that they're either stimulated or encouraged or challenged, but so that they complete, learn to think in a completely different manner than that which they thought prior to salvation. So the task of the disciples were to teach them to what? To observe... All that I commanded you. Guess what the word, the Greek word is that's translated observe. It's our word tereo. Literally to keep all that I commanded you. To keep all my commandments. That's what the, they were to teach people is to keep all the mandates of the New Testament. There are hundreds and hundreds of imperative verbs in the New Testament. There are prohibitions in the New Testament. All of those prohibitions, all of those mandates, describe the boundaries of the Christian life. When we disobey any of them, we're immediately out of bounds, out of fellowship, grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit. We sin. Therefore, we have to confess our sin, and then we're restored to fellowship. So the word tereo here is used in 1 John 1.9, immediately reminds us, of the basic command that Jesus gave the disciples known as the Great Commission. He says, he says this, by this we know that we have come to know him and have an advanced relationship with God if we keep his commandments. Now, what does this mean by commandments? What does that word mean? People have all kinds of crazy ideas as soon as they see the word commandment. Some people think that the commandment means the Ten Commandments. Now, remember, the Ten Commandments were given to Israel. This isn't talking about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were part of a document that began in Exodus chapter 20 and goes to the end of, almost to the end of Exodus. It was part of the Mosaic Law. The Ten Commandments were simply the preamble to the Mosaic Law. It was a historical document given by God to the nation Israel. Not one non-Jew was ever held accountable to the Mosaic Law of the Ten Commandments. Now, I know that may shock some of you. Not a single Old Testament believer, or not a single Old Testament unbeliever, Gentile, was ever held accountable for the Mosaic Law. Why? It wasn't given to them. Does that mean they got away with murder? No. Murder was wrong from Genesis 4 when Cain killed Abel. Murder was wrong even before Cain killed Abel. The murder violated the character and the standard of God. Lying was wrong before the, the, the Ten Commandments. All of these things were wrong long before they were codified in the Mosaic Law. That codification was a legal code, just as we have a Constitution and a uh, legal code for the United States. That was a codification of law for a nation. It did not mean that it was at that point that those things were determined to be wrong. They were already wrong and had been wrong since creation. So the commandment here, term commandment here in the Greek is entole, does not refer to the Ten Commandments, but refers to the mandates of God given in uh, the New Testament for the church age. 
Second thing we can say about this is that it is a positive test for the believer who has experienced ongoing fellowship with God. It's a positive test, a way of self-evaluation to see how far we've come in our spiritual life. Third thing we can say about this is that the word in tole, translated commandment, looks like this in the Greek, E-N-T-O-L-E. This last is a long E, entole. And entole means order, command, charge, precept, or injunction. It indicates that there are absolutes for the life of the believer. It suggests that there is a command of someone in authority to someone who is inferior. And it demonstrates that authority orientation to Scripture and to God the Father must precede knowledge of God. There must be orientation to the authority of Scripture and to God the Father before we can have knowledge of God. And authority orientation is part of grace orientation and doctrine orientation. So this just tells us, this emphasizes for us the stages in spiritual growth. So there are commandments. Now, saying that there are commandments is not legalism. I want to repeat that because there are a lot of people who think that legalism means that as a Christian you say you can't do this and you should do this. Oh, you're a legalist. That's not what legalism is. You know, Moses wasn't a legalist and he gave him the Mosaic Law. Joshua wasn't a legalist and in Joshua chapter 1 he He says we need to meditate on his law day and night. David wasn't a legalist, and David wrote Psalm 19, where he emphasized the importance of meditating on God's law continuously. Psalm 1, meditating on the law of God day and night. All of the different commands that are given in the Psalms that David wrote. But David wasn't a legalist. What then is legalism? Legalism is not the emphasis on absolutes or right or wrong or obedience to commandments. Legalism is saying that I receive blessing from God and approval from God because I've obeyed those commandments. That's what legalism is. Legalism didn't come in until the Pharisees after the Jews returned from the 70-year Babylonian captivity. When the Jews returned from the Babylonian captivity in order to protect their traditions, the Pharisees started developing non-biblical applications By non-biblical, I don't mean that they were wrong, but that they were not given in Scripture, non-biblical applications to the mandates of Scripture. So when Scripture told the Jews that they should put a a man should put a parapet, a low wall around his roof, so and that was a safety precaution. That was God's version of HUD and OSHA, so that uh, your kids wouldn't fall off the roof because in a hot Mediterranean climate. It gets hot in the house, and so where do you go to cool off at night? You go up on, uh, you don't have a deck, you go up on the roof. You have your uh, patio furniture up on the roof, and you go up there, and you sit, and you uh, get a little sun, and you get the cool breezes in the evening, and you relax on the roof. Well, when your two- or three-year-old toddler stumbles off the edge, uh, they're not going to uh, feel too good about that, and neither will you. So in Mosaic Law, God gave them a little safety procedure. Well, in the legalistic mentality that developed after the uh, Babylonian captivity, Jews would say, well, how high does that have to be? What's it supposed to be made out of? How far from the edge? 
See, all, God just said put a parapet around the wall. He didn't go into all the details. And this was what happened in, um, with, with the Pharisees is they started coming along. And if, if God said don't work on the Sabbath, well, what exactly is work? You can't lift anything. How heavy? Can I lift a teaspoon of sugar? Or can I lift a coffee cup? And, and so they have to say, okay, well, if it weighs more than five pounds, you can't lift it. See, that was the development of legalism. The Scripture didn't say you couldn't lift anything heavier than a five-pound load. Just said don't work on, on the Sabbath. But the legalist, legalistic Pharisees came along, and they inserted all these traditions as to what you could do and couldn't do. And then on top of that, the obedience to those, those uh, traditions that they established became a sign of whether God would give you blessing or not. That's legalism. That our relationship with God is dependent on what we do. Our relationship with God is dependent on what Christ did, not on what we do. But obedience is necessary to grow in the spiritual life. We're blessed because we've seen this again and again, almost into excessive repetition. God is plus R. Perfect righteousness, absolute justice. What the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God supplies. At the cross, Jesus Christ was perfect righteousness. We're born with minus R. Our sins were imputed to Christ on the cross, and when we trust Him as our Savior, His perfect righteousness is imputed to us, so that when God looks at us now, He looks at the perfect righteousness of Christ. God then blesses us, not because of what we do, ever, but because we possess the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. All blessing, logistical supply blessing, the food we eat, the air we breathe, the water we drink, the jobs we have, the clothes we wear, the homes we live in, all come to us as part of God's blessing, the righteousness of Christ in us, not because we gave 10% 10% to the church, not because we went to church, not because we're starting to read our Bible every day, because we possess the perfect righteousness of Christ. Advanced Christian life blessings come to us, not because of what we do, but because of the perfect righteousness of Christ. Now, God's not going to distribute those advanced blessings if we don't grow, because only with growth comes capacity. Just like you may decide to give your uh, son a brand new car. But you're not going to give it to him when he's six because he doesn't have the capacity for it. You're going to give it to him because he's your son and you love him. It doesn't have anything to do with who he is or what, he, what he's like. But you're going to wait until he's grown and, and has capacity for it so he doesn't destroy himself or destroy the car. And that's the way God is. The blessings are ours never because of, who, of what we do. Never because we obey the commandments. Obeying the commandments is how we stay in fellowship. When we stay in fellowship, we're abiding in Christ. When we're abiding in Christ, the Holy Spirit is filling us and maturing us and producing fruit in our lives, which is maturity, which is the character of Christ. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, against which there is no law. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. That's how spiritual growth takes place. That's the dynamic. We do not grow because we're obedient. But because we're obedient, we're, we maintain fellowship where growth takes place. When we're disobedient, we're out of fellowship. Growth can't take place, and there can't be any spiritual maturity, and so it's all wood, hay, and straw. 
So this is why the test is if we keep his commandments. Because only as we come to know God through a study of his word are we then motivated by understanding his grace to love him. And we come to love him because we have come to know him. We've come to know him because we have studied his word. We've studied his word because we don't show up in Bible class just once a week. We show up on Sunday morning. We show up Wednesday night. We get tapes. We are constantly letting our thinking be, be renovated by studying and learning His Word. Now, this emphasis on obedience to commandments as a barometer for spiritual growth is evident from numerous other passages in Scripture. For example, John thirteen thirty four, Jesus said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, in John fourteen fifteen, he expands on that and says, If you love me, you keep my commandments. So there's a relationship between keeping commandments and loving him. And there's a relationship between loving him and knowing him. And that's what we see developed, as I've said again and again. First John is a commentary on John, 14, John 13, 14, and 15. John 14:21 Jesus says he who has my commandments and keeps them there's our word tereo again he who has my commandments that's the person who goes to bible class and learns doctrine and keeps them that's the one who applies what they learn is the one who loves me what's the barometer for loving god not how you feel it's what you do he who loves me will be loved by my father and i will love him and disclose myself to him notice there is a progression to our understanding of God and His self-disclosure to us. This is not talking about new information, information about God apart from the Scripture. It is our understanding of the Scripture and our relationship with Him comes incrementally as we obey that which He has already taught us. If we don't obey it, we're not going to move to the next level of understanding of God. And God says, "If I'm going to give you this much... And if you understand it and apply it, then I'll take you to the next level. But I'm not going to give you more until you're applying, learning, I mean, applying consistently what I've already given you. So there is this incremental advance of our understanding of God and His revelation based on what we do with what He's already given us. John 15:10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Notice we're going to see the word abide introduced down in verse 6 of 1 John chapter 2. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. It, it, it advances us to that next stage related to the love of God and that, and that intimate fellowship with Him. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. John fifteen twelve. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. So from this we see that obedience to God precedes the advanced knowledge of God. Obedience to God precedes the advanced knowledge of God. And to be obedient to God, we have to know what God expects of us, which means we have to study His Word. And we come to 1 John 2.4. 1 John 2.4. This is an example. Now, He gave us the principle in verse 3. And now he's going to give us some examples. There are parallels between verses 4 through 6 and what he did in verses, chapter 1, verse 5, down through chapter 1, verse 10. There he said, if we say, 
They were hypothetical scenarios for believers. Notice he said, if we say, if we say, we as believers, if we say we haven't, uh, that we have fellowship with him and we walk in the darkness, then we lie and we don't practice the truth. On the other hand, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then the blood of Christ continually cleanses us. But here, instead of saying, if we say, he's going to shift to an impersonal, articular, present participle of lego, which is correctly translated, the one who says, or as it's translated, New King James, he who says, or the one who says, either one is fine, the one who says, I have come to know him. So now we have an individual who makes a claim. Now, when he shifts to the one who says, that could be a believer or an unbeliever. It could be anyone. So he says, the one who says, I have come to know him. So here we have a person who makes a claim. I have come to know him. Again, it's a perfect active indicative of gnosko, meaning that I have come to this. Somebody's making a claim that they have reached spiritual uh, adulthood. They have come to know God, not just that knowledge of spiritual infancy where you know certain things about God, but now you have a deeper relationship with Him. If someone makes that claim and does not keep His commandments, there's the application of the standard. If you claim to know Him and you do not keep His commandments, what are you? You are a liar and the truth is not in Him. So if someone claims to have fellowship, or claims to have this advanced knowledge of God, this advanced personal relationship, and is not applying doctrine. You look at their life and say, I don't, what, what church do they go to? What tapes are they listening to? Because their, their lifestyle doesn't match what their talk is. We've all seen people like that. And we look at them and we just wonder uh, what doctrine they've been listening to. So he, and this can apply even to, even to baby, ignorant baby believers who um, want to try to justify their actions. Have you ever noticed that? That, that people do certain things and we just want to justify our actions by saying, well, listen, I, 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 I know this is what God wants me to do. God sure gets blamed for a lot of things. So this is the, this is the criteria. I have come to know him. And you make the claim of this deeper relationship with God. And the evidence is obedience. And so John says, anyone who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar. That means they are divorced from reality. This takes us right back to chapter 1, verse 6. Look at, turn back for just a moment. There we have the claim, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness. That's the same type of claim, just as the Immature believers say, I have fellowship with God, but there's no lifestyle of obedience. They're lying and they don't practice the truth. What does that mean? They don't apply doctrine. Uh, application there, they do not practice the truth, means to apply doctrine. If you don't apply doctrine, you're not in fellowship. If you don't apply doctrine, you don't know God. You don't have that deeper relationship with God. That's what he means by the truth is not in him. Now, actually... There are three options there. When he says, and the truth is not in him, that could mean, first of all, that they're not saved, which would indicate they have no understanding of doctrine because no unbeliever can understand doctrine. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man, the soulish man, does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. So it could refer to the person who's unsaved who has no understanding of doctrine. Secondly, it could refer to the saved believer 
who has no knowledge of doctrine, no teaching. All they know is Christ died on the cross for them. They're just barely saved. No information about the spiritual life. No knowledge of doctrine. So there's no obedience. And then third, it could refer to the saved believer who has advanced to spiritual maturity. But at this moment, they're out of fellowship. Maybe they're living in carnality. And in that case, it would be a believer ignoring doctrine, operating on human viewpoint, and walking according to the sin nature, Galatians 5.16. So John says, he who says, I know him, makes a claim of knowledge of God, of spiritual maturity, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and there is no doctrine operational in him. We see again and again... I don't want to take the time to do it this morning, that the phrase in him for John is a term of relationship. So that would mean that the truth, there is no relationship at this point with doctrine in that believer's soul. Now the contrast, verse 5, starts with the Greek word dev, which is an adversative conjunction, indicating contrast. So see how John teaches by way of contrast. That's something I like to do. I'm amazed. Sometimes you can stand up and you can teach something positively all day long, and people don't quite get it. But when you juxtapose the truth with error so that they can see the contrast, then all of a sudden the light goes on. And that's exactly John's methodology here. He is contrasting the false response with the true response. But whoever keeps his word, once again, it's an impersonal participial form. But whoever keeps his word. Notice the shift. I want you to pay attention to this. He, in verse 3, he refers to the word by commandments. If we keep his commandments. Verse 4, the one who does not keep his commandments. But in verse 5, he changes. He's not using just the word commandments. He goes to whoever keeps his word. Truly, the love of God is perfected in him. Now, I want you to notice this word. I don't like the fact that so many translations translate it with the word perfect or perfected. Perfection means flawless or without uh, error. And that's not what this word means. It's the Greek word teleao. T-E-L-E-I-O-O. Teleao. And it means to bring to completion. To bring to maturity or to simply to mature something. It indicates maturity, not perfection. So what John is saying here, whoever keeps his word, that is, whoever is obedient to the mandates of Scripture. Remember, Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Absolute truth. So he's saying whoever keeps his word, it is the keeping of the word that is a process of sanctification, spiritual growth. Whoever keeps his word truly, the love of God is matured in him. Now, there's another phrase we have to clarify here, and that is the phrase love of God. Run out of space here. Now, this is... The love of God. Now, this is the phrase in the Greek, hey, agape, to theu. Hey, agape, to theu. This is the noun, the article here, 
article here, genitive, noun here. Now, the genitive is going to tell us something about the head noun, which is agape or love. The two nouns are agape and theos for God, and the OU is a genitive ending. Now, a genitive is an interesting thing because it can mean this type of genitive can be what's called a subjective genitive or an objective genitive. Once again, we find ourselves in another little grammar lesson. Love is a noun here, but it's a noun of action. It's a noun of action. When you, it's a noun, but it's describing an action. Now, an action can be towards something. Okay? If it's towards something, then the, then the action is produce, has an object. That would be an objective genitive, and that would mean love for God. A subjective genitive would indicate that the genitival noun, God, is performing the action. Now, there are some passages where, where this phrase means God's love. But you have to look at the context. This is not talking about God's love for us isn't brought to maturity because we obey Him. That's works. This is an objective genitive. Our love for God is brought to completion by obedience. As we study the Word and we learn about God, we learn more about God, love is always based on knowledge. Love is not based on emotion. Love is not based on feelings. It's based on an intimate knowledge of the object. So as our love for God grows because we're spending time studying His Word, meditating on His Word, and applying His Word, then what happens is we come to know who God is. We understand the uh, dimensions of His grace in our lives and all that He does for us. And the result is greater gratitude. Our grace orientation develops and we respond to His love. As John will say later on in 1 John 4, we love Him because He first loved us. As we come to understand the dimensions of His love for us, then our love for Him advances and is brought to completion or brought to maturity. So John says, whoever keeps his word, truly the love for God is brought to completion in him. By this, now we come to that uh, anaphoric use of the by this. By this, by what we've just stated, by this obedience, by this Love being brought to completion in us. By this we know that we are in Him. Now, in Him is not like Paul uses the phrase in Christ. We're all familiar with that. Second Corinthians 5.21 If any man be in, Christ, be in Christ, he is a new creature. In Christ is Paul's technical terminology for being saved. At the point of salvation, we are baptized or identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. But the phrase in him in John is not talking about uh, salvation. Jesus said, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Uh, that same phraseology, in me, it's, it, Jesus didn't need to be saved. The Father is in me and I am in him. You know, in him is relational. It is not salvational. And so for John, the phrase in him and in me has to do with that intimate relationship with God. We studied that in detail in our study of John 15, where Jesus said that we are to abide in Him, that abiding in Him is 
Um, uh, it's more than simple fellowship, but it is remaining in fellowship, not just not just confessing our sins and getting into fellowship, but staying there and growing and advancing in maturity. So what John is saying here is whoever keeps his word then, that is part of advancing to maturity and abiding in him. And by this we know, we can know with certainty that we are in him. That And, and abiding is understood there because he brings this in in verse 6. Now, I want you to hold your place here and turn to John 14. We'll close by looking back at John 14, 21, and 23. John 14, 21, and 23. John 14. Jesus says to the disciples, a little while longer and the world will see me no more. He's talking about his ascension. It's 40 days, a little over 40 days away. The world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You will live also. At that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me. This is, I'm in verse 20. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Sound familiar? And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Notice he uses the word commandment in verse 21. Verse 22, Judas, not as scared, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If, anybody, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. John, in 1 John 2, 3 through 6, is John's expanded commentary on what Jesus says in John 14, 21 to 23. He even uses the same shift. He starts with commandment and shifts to word. Same thing happens here. Jesus starts with commandment in verse 21, and then in verse 23 he says, Keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. This is not salvation. This is talking about the advanced intimacy that the believer enjoys in spiritual adulthood with God the Father as a reason, because he's no longer bouncing in and out of fellowship all the time. He is spending more and more time in fellowship with the Lord, having that fellowship with the Lord, and advancing to spiritual maturity. And that love for the Father is manifest by obedience. Verse 24, He who does not love me does not keep my words, And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. Next time we'll come back and look at the next principle in 1 John 2.6, which talks about the importance or the relationship between abiding in Him and the believer's walk or spiritual life. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank You for this time together. Thank You for Your grace that You have provided for us a spiritual life that is not based on who we are or what we do. That our salvation is not based on who we are or what we do, but it is based exclusively on who you are and what Jesus Christ did on the cross when he paid the penalty for our sins. 
Father, we thank you for this great salvation and this spiritual life that is based upon the Holy Spirit whom you have given us, and it is the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand your word and advance to spiritual maturity. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their eternal destiny, uncertain of their eternal life, that right now they would make that sure and certain. Right now they would take this opportunity to put their faith alone in Christ alone, that they would put their trust exclusively in Jesus Christ as the one who paid the penalty for their sins. Scripture says there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to make a bargain with God. You don't have to change your life. All you have to do is trust in Christ alone for your salvation. And at that instant, you are saved, you are made a new creature in Christ, and you are given a precious gift of salvation that can never be taken away. Father, we pray that you would remind us of the things we study today and challenge us with the importance of walking in obedience and applying your word as we advance spiritually. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.